Hi friends, welcome back to True Crimes Untold. I'm your host Jess. This next episode is on Rodney Alcala, the dating game killer. to the women that he encountered. Sexual sadism involves arousal at the pain of someone else, an extreme pain usually. Alcala appears to be a sexual sadist. Hello, 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 you beautiful people. How are you guys? I hope you're all well, happy, and healthy. Happy Valentine's Day. So just out of curiosity, what do you couples do out there for Valentine's Day? Do you buy each other gifts? Do you cook dinner together? Do you go out to eat and wait two hours to be sat? (laughs) JR and I usually cook dinner together, but I have to work a split shift. So, mm, but maybe he'll have dinner cooked for me for when I get home. I'll let you know in a couple weeks. My birthday is also coming up in a few months in June. It's, you know, still a little away, but it'll be here before I know it. I'm going to be 35. And this year, I asked for a Magic Mixies. Now, you may not know what that is because it's for the age group 6 to 12, but it's fucking awesome. Anybody out there who knows what a Magic Mixie is, and if you know me, you know why I want one. They are so cool. It comes like with this cauldron and you have all these different things like potions, little stickers, things that you put into the cauldron. It smokes, it changes colors. And at the end, you get your magic mixie, which is like an animal hybrid monster type of thing. And they are adorable. But I want one right now. You can't find them in stores anywhere. I went like a 30-mile radius looking for these things. They're sold out everywhere. Target, Walmart, anywhere who sells them. They don't have one. So I guess I'm just going to wait to get it for my birthday and he will order it for me. I'm going to do a video while I put it together, you know, and I'm not kidding you. People have gotten millions of likes on TikTok TikTok doing these magic mixy videos. So maybe I'm next, guys. I guess we'll have to wait and see. All right, enough with my bullshit. Let's get into this week's episode. I am going to give a listener's discretion. This episode does contain violence, rape against young girls, young women. Um, Of course, there's adult language. So if you don't want to hear about this type of thing, I understand. Just go ahead and skip past. Maybe one day I'll do like a really whimsical story just to throw in here. That way everybody can listen to it, not just people who like true crime. 
Listen, I like whimsical things too. Obviously, I'm getting a fucking magic mixie for my birthday. So, all right. Okay. Okay. So, this week's story is about a man who raped and murdered his victims, but somehow he was able to slip through the cracks of the justice system for far too long. This is the story of Rodney Alcala, the dating game killer. On September 25, 1968, 8-year-old Tally Shapiro was walking to school when a man in a beige car pulled up next to her and asked if she would like a ride. Tally's parents have always taught her the importance of stranger danger, so she tells the man no. The man tells Tally that he knows her parents and they said it was okay. He tells her that if she gets in the car, that he has a beautiful picture that he would like to show her. Since Tally is only eight, she believes the man because he is believable. She gets into the car and the man drives off. Another driver who noticed the strange interaction decided to follow the beige car. He just knew in his gut that Tally getting into that car didn't sit right with him. He followed them through Los Angeles to an apartment building, and when he sees where the man is taking Tally, he immediately leaves and calls 911 to report the incident. So just a side note, obviously this is in the late 60s, 70s, so there were not cell phones. So this man, this good Samaritan, he had to drive to find a payphone. So obviously everything took a little bit longer than than like in today's time where we have cell phones and we can immediately call when we saw this happening. Law enforcement dispatches a police officer right away. The first detective on the scene is a man named Chris. Chris gets to the apartment, knocks on the door, and announces that he is with the LAPD and that who is ever inside needs to open the door pronto. Just a few moments later, a man opens the door, but he doesn't fully come out. He just pokes his head out and he tells Chris that he was just in the shower and asks for a moment to go get dressed. When Chris did an interview with 48 Hours, he said he knew right away that this man was bad news. Chris tells the man that he has 10 seconds and then he better be there to open the door. As the seconds go by, the man never returns, so Chris kicks the door open and he stumbles upon a horror scene. Right there in the kitchen, laying in a pool of her own blood, is the little girl that the 911 caller described. Chris can see that Tally had been beaten with a heavy metal bar that was still laying across her throat. Chris's backup was now on scene and everyone's attention went immediately to Tally. But as they start to get closer to Tally, they wonder if they were just minutes too late. They can see that she had been raped and she is not breathing. One of the officers checks the rest of the apartment for the man that peeked his head out of that apartment door, the man who committed this horrific crime. Then police heard something they did not expect. It was a wet choking noise coming from Tally. The police rush to Tally's side and call for an ambulance. Once the ambulance arrives and stabilizes Tally, they take her straight to the hospital and the police turn their attention back to finding the man who did this. This is when they realize that sometime amidst all the chaos, the man that was responsible escaped through the back door. Detectives search through the apartment looking for any clues or information on who this man is. While they're searching, they find some very disturbing things. 
His apartment is full of professional photography equipment, and alongside that equipment is a huge collection of pictures. All of these pictures were of young girls, and it's obvious to police because of this massive collection that this man is obsessed with taking pictures of young girls and women. Police find out the man's identity from a student ID card from UCLA. The card has a photo of the man, and his name is Rodney Alcala. According to the LA Times, when police investigate who Rodney is, they find out that he's a 25-year-old undergrad who studied theater. They also find out that people don't know Rodney as this monster, but as a very well-liked friend and student. At this point, police are hearing nothing but rumors about where Rodney may be, and in the following year of 1969, Rodney Alcala was put on the FBI's top 10 most wanted list. Even with his name being on that list, years go by with no trace of Rodney, until 1971. The LAPD gets a shocking phone call thousands of miles away from the FBI office in New Hampshire. The officer on the phone tells the LAPD that they have Rodney there in custody, and how they found him is puzzling. They tell the LAPD that two girls went to the post office in town and saw Rodney's picture on the FBI's most wanted poster, and chills ran down their spines. They recognized Rodney, and not only that, but they actually knew him very well. He was their counselor at an all-girls summer camp. Rodney had been living in New York City for some time now, and he was attending film school at NYU under a fake name, John Berger. Now that he's in custody, the FBI brought Rodney back to California to be prosecuted for the rape and attempted murder of Tally, but there's one problem. By this time, Tally and her parents moved from California to Mexico. They wanted a fresh start for Tally, and when the FBI asked the family to return to California to testify, they say no. They didn't want to put their daughter through ever having to see Rodney again. Because Tally doesn't testify at the trial, Rodney is offered a deal. He pleads guilty to a charge of child molestation and is sentenced to 1 to 99 years in prison. Since it's 1972, California still had indefinite sentencing laws, so it would be up to the parole board how long he served. While Rodney was in prison, he was able to manipulate and convince the California Parole Board that he was no longer a threat to society. He was released from prison after serving just 34 months. But that doesn't last long. In October 1974, just two months after he was released, Rodney was arrested again. According to court records, Rodney pulled up alongside a 13-year-old girl named Julie as she was walking to school and asked if she wanted a ride. Julie accepted the ride, but when she gets in, he doesn't drive her to the school. Rodney takes her to an isolated area near the ocean, and he forces Julie to smoke marijuana, and then he kisses her. Thankfully, before anything else could happen, police arrived. Rodney being with an underage girl and smoking marijuana is all a violation of his parole, so he is arrested immediately and goes right back to jail. He was released again in 1977, and this time the parole board makes an appalling decision. Rodney's parole officer allows him to leave California and go back to New York City. 
investigators are stunned that this two-time sex offender is being allowed to go back to New York, where they believe he has committed more crimes, but there is nothing they can do about it. Rodney doesn't stay in New York for very long and is back in Los Angeles by early 1978. According to People's Magazine, Rodney takes a job at the Los Angeles Times working as a typesetter, and during this time in L.A., the Hillside Stranglers were terrorizing the city, and the L.A. Times were covering the murders. According to Oxygen TV, since Rodney is a registered sex offender, he is interviewed by the Hillside Strangler Task Force in March that year as a potential suspect. Police don't have any evidence against Rodney, but during the interview, they do find marijuana on him. He ends up getting a short county jail sentence and a charge for drug possession. A year later, on June 14, 1979, a 21-year-old woman named Jill Parento is found dead in her apartment in Burbank. She was raped and strangled. Right away, police look at Rodney for the murder, but they don't pursue charges because all the evidence that the police had was too circumstantial to build a case. Just a few weeks later, on July 2nd, a fire crew that was in the Los Angeles Hills doing some routine maintenance stumbled upon a dismembered skeleton. ABC 7 News reported that the head was separated from the body, both hands were removed, and there was evidence of strangulation. The front teeth also appeared to be cracked, like the victim had been beaten. The body was too small to be an adult, and dental records confirmed that the bones belonged to a 12-year-old girl named Robin Samso. Robin had been reported missing on June 20th, just six days after Jill was found murdered and police let Rodney go. When police begin their investigation into Robin's murder, her best friend Bridget tells them about a strange encounter that her and Robin had earlier on the day that Robin disappeared. She said that a man with dark curly hair approached them while they were at Huntington Beach. She tells police that the man was asking the girls if he could take their pictures. The description Bridget gave, plus this man asking to take their pictures, made police believe this could only be one person, Rodney Alcala. With Bridget's help, police get a composite sketch made, and the sketch looks almost identical to Rodney. One of the parole board members from the same board that was so sure that Rodney was rehabilitated sees the sketch in the news and confirms for police that they need to find this man quickly. Luckily this time, Rodney was easy to find. He was still living in California at his mother's house in Monterey Park in a Monterey Park neighborhood of Los Angeles. Rodney denies to police of ever being at Huntington Beach that day and says he actually hasn't been there in years, but he also doesn't have an alibi for the day Robin went missing. Police noticed that Rodney had gotten a haircut and chemically straightened his curly hair after the sketch was released, which was his most noticeable feature. Comparing the sketch to the way Rodney looked now versus then, the resemblance is much, much less. When people look at Rodney, he seems to be living a normal life. He's a photographer, he has no problem getting jobs, and he even has a steady girlfriend. Her name is Beth, and they have been dating for a few months, and just like Rodney's friends and professors, she cannot believe that Rodney would be capable of hurting someone else. 
Beth did an interview with 48 Hours, and she said their relationship was going really well. She knew Rodney as this smart, fun guy, and even though she wanted to convince police that he's not their guy, she couldn't provide an alibi for him. Beth tells police that she wasn't with Rodney on June 20th. She also tells them that Rodney had just gotten rid of the carpet in his car. He told Beth that he spilled gasoline in his car, and at the time, Beth didn't think anything of it. Police get a search warrant and look through the entire house, searching for anything that links Rodney to Robin or any other victim. But there is nothing in the home that they can trace back to Robin. They keep Rodney in jail, though, so they can keep an eye on him. Police want to see if maybe he will talk or to see who comes to visit him. One day, Rodney's sister does come to the jail to visit him. During the visit, Rodney leans in and whispers to his sister that he needs a favor. He tells her that he has a storage locker in Seattle, Washington, and he asks her to go clean it out before police can get to it. The police are obviously hearing this interaction, and they remember finding a receipt for a storage locker while searching Rodney's home. At the time, they didn't think anything of it since they have never connected Rodney to anything in Seattle. But now they are sure that there is something in that storage locker that they need to see. Police race to Washington to make sure they get there first. They get to the storage locker and pull the door up, and what they see shocks them all. Inside the storage locker, they find stacks and stacks of pictures. Pictures of young girls and women and even boys. Most of these pictures are explicit in nature and amongst the piles of photographs, they find something else. A bag of earrings. And in the bag, there was one pair in particular that caught police's attention. They were little gold studs that they looked that looked like the ones Robin may have been wearing the day she went missing. Police showed the earrings to Robin's mom to see if she recognized them, and not only did she recognize them, she tells police that they actually belonged to her and that around the time Robin went missing, she would borrow them and wear them all the time. Police have seen this so many times before, where murderers will keep something that belonged to their victims as a trophy, so they can look at it and replay the encounter over and over again in their minds. According to court records, while investigators were putting together evidence for a murder trial, they began to go through the hundreds and hundreds of photographs. In one of these pictures, there's a girl roller skating on the boardwalk at Sunset Beach, which is located right in the city of Huntington Beach, the same area that Rodney claimed he hadn't been for years. Police release the photograph, hoping that this girl is still alive, and they get lucky. They learn that the girl in the photo is a 15-year-old girl named Lori. She was able to escape from Rodney unharmed with a very similar story that police have heard before. Lori tells police that her and a friend were at Sunset Beach when a man carrying a camera approached them saying that he worked for a magazine and asked to take their picture for a contest. Now that police have these photographs, the bag of earrings, witness sightings, the composite sketch, and Rodney's prior convictions, police and the DA's office start to build their case. Rodney is denied bail and is kept in prison until the trial of Robin's murder. 
The trial starts February 1980, and by the end of it in April, Rodney is found guilty, and this time he is sentenced to death. But that is not the end of this story. Because in 1984, Rodney's murder conviction was overturned by the California Supreme Court. His conviction gets overturned after the Supreme Court finds that the jury was improperly informed about Rodney's prior convictions. They determined that it made his trial unfair and violated his constitutional rights. Two years later, in 1986, Rodney goes on trial again for Robin's murder and is convicted and sentenced to death for the second time. After this sentence, Rodney files another appeal, but he stays on death row in California until 2001 when he gets a rolling. His conviction has been overturned again. But now since it's 2001 and forensics have grown so much since the 70s, DNA evidence is now used in homicide investigations across the country. This gives police the chance to re-examine old evidence like blood or semen to help nail down the criminal. Then in 2002, the California Attorney General announced that death row inmates would have their DNA taken to establish a database. In 2003, after 24 years in prison, police get a DNA sample from Rodney and used it to link him to four more murders in and around the Los Angeles area from 1977 up to his arrest in 1979. All four women had been sexually assaulted, violently beaten, strangled in and out of consciousness, and then had their bodies posed into unnatural positions. When Rodney got out of prison in 1977, a girl named Jill Barcombe's body was found in a ravine. Police initially thought that Jill was a victim to the hillside stranglers, but DNA evidence proves that she was one of Rodney's victims. Rodney's next victim was 27-year-old Georgia Wickstead in 1977. Then he took Charlotte Lamb's life in 1978. Charlotte's DNA was found on a pair of earrings that were found in the storage locker. The next case that police were able to connect to Rodney was Jill Parento, and this time they could finally prove it. With all this new evidence, the DAA decides to try something different. Instead of retrying him again for Robin's murder, they want to combine all five murders and prosecute him at the same time. The new trial for all five women doesn't start until 2010, and Rodney decides he wants to be his own defense attorney. During the trial, Rodney is actually allowed to call Robin's mother to the stand and question her. He also calls himself as a witness and cross-examines himself on the stand. And when Rodney is acting as his lawyer, he talks in one voice, and when he is answering his own questions, he talks in another voice. As a part of Rodney's defense, he presents a video of himself on TV from September 1978. He was a contestant on the dating game, and he won. I'm going to play you a couple of clips from that episode, and listening to it, gave me chills. Hello to you and see how they sound. Number one, would you say hello to Cheryl, please? We're going to have a great time together, Cheryl. Okay. And here we go. Dad! Hi, 
Bachelor number one. Yes. What's your best time? The best time is at night, nighttime. <laughs> Why do you say that? Because that's the only time there is. The only time? What's wrong with uh, morning, afternoon? Well, they're okay, but nighttime is when it really gets good. Then mm. you're really ready. I'm a drama teacher, and I'm going to audition each of you for my private class. Bachelor number one. You're a dirty old man. Take it. Come on, over here. <sighs> dinner. Oh. What are you called and what do you look like? I'm called the banana and I look really good. Uh, can you be a little more descriptive? Peel me. The woman who chose Rodney, who was bachelor number one, decided not to go on a date with him. She told the Sunday Telegraph in 2012 that she got a bad feeling about Rodney when they were talking backstage, so she asked the producers if she had to go on the date with him. Thankfully, she never did go out with Rodney, and that decision more than likely saved her life. The point that Rodney was trying to make with this video was that you can see that he is wearing gold earrings, just like the ones that Robin's mom said were hers. According to Rodney, this proved that police were wrong about the earrings. Another contestant that was on the show with Rodney told CNN in 2010 that he never saw Rodney wearing earrings. He also said that he was very uncomfortable around Rodney. He described him as creepy, even though he was charming on stage. The jury sees right through Rodney, and he is found guilty of capital murder and convicted of killing five innocent women and girls. At Rodney's sentencing hearing, a grown Tally Shapiro, Rodney's first known victim who barely survived his attack, testifies against him. Rodney plays the song Alice's Restaurant by Arlo Guthrie during the sentencing. These are some of the lyrics from that song. Quote, I want to see blood and gore and guts and veins in my teeth. Eat dead burnt bodies. I mean, kill, 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 kill. End quote. According to Reuters News, the jury reaches their decision that afternoon. Again, for the third time, Rodney is sentenced to death. No more appeals, no more overturned convictions. Rodney is in jail and he is not getting out to hurt anyone else. After Rodney was sentenced and police knew he was no longer a threat on the streets, they turned their attention to something else. They wondered how many victims did Rodney actually have. Police believe that the cases Rodney went to trial for are likely just a few out of potentially many victims. In 2010, investigators decide to make all the non-explicit photos that Rodney had in his possession public. 
There were about 900 pictures, but they could only release about 120 of them. They put them out to the public asking for help identifying the women. Many of the pictures were taken at the beach or at sporting events. Two of the 120 are of unidentified young men. Carlin Miller reported for CBS News that a lot of the photos that were released to the public actually have addresses on the back of them. This may have meant that Rodney was hunting and tracking his victims. By March, nine women from Rodney's horrific collection had been identified. Luckily, all nine of them were still alive. One of the women told police that Rodney had molested her. Multiple families also came forward to tell police that they recognized some of the women as missing loved ones. That same month, Rodney is connected to three more murders. 19-year-old Pamela Lampson, who went missing from the San Francisco Bay Area in 1977 after telling her friends that she was going to meet up with a photographer that matched Rodney's description. Pamela's naked body was found shortly after. Then, 13-year-old Antoinette Whitaker and 17-year-old Joyce Gonge were both murdered in Seattle, where Rodney had his storage locker. There isn't enough infinitive DNA or fingerprints to connect Rodney to these murders, but police are confident that he is responsible. New York police also came out to collect Rodney's DNA and dental impressions. In January 2011, the Manhattan DA charges Rodney for the murders of Cornelia Crilly and Ellen Hoover. According to the New York Post, Rodney's been on the NYPD's radar for Ellen's murder for years before they charge him. Ever since they found his fake name, John Berger, written in her date book the day she disappeared. Rodney pleads guilty to the murder so he can get back to California and start on his appeals. Rodney was sentenced to 25 years to life in prison, so even if his third death sentence does get reversed, he would be sent back to New York to do time for the murder of Ellen and Cornelia. Police don't think they will ever know for sure how many people Rodney has killed. He's been convicted of seven murders, but they believe that number could go all the way up to 130 victims. In 2013, a Wyoming woman named Kathy Thornton got an email from her son. He knew growing up, growing up that his Aunt Christine went missing back in 1977 when she was six months pregnant. Kathy scrolled through the pictures that her son sent her, the ones that police had released, and she makes a terrifying discovery. In photo number 86 was her sister Christine, sitting on a motorcycle, smiling in the sunshine. Kathy and two of her siblings submit their DNA to the missing and unidentified system database. It takes two years, but in 2015, the DNA comes back with a match. It's to a deceased woman who was found in Sweetwater County, Wyoming back in 1982. Rodney is charged with first-degree murder in Sweetwater County and in September 2016, but because of Rodney's failing health, he was never extradited to the trial. Rodney sat on death row for almost 40 years before he died of natural causes at the age of 77. Let me just say, it drives me fucking crazy when I hear these stories of these serial murderers 
living a full life. Yes, I know his life was in and out of prison, you know, 24 years in prison, then 40 years on death row. But he still went to UCLA, NYU, theater school, like he worked for the LA Times. He lived a full life. And it's just so unfair. And, you know, how many times can we say, you know, life can be unfair and we will just never understand why, just why. But I don't know. Another thing I wanted to throw in here about uh, Rodney is that he is actually the second smartest. He has the highest IQ under Ted Kaczynski, which is the Unabomber in I believe in the world for serial killers. So he is the second smartest serial killer in the world or in the country. One of those two. But either way, fuck. Like these dudes are smart, you know. So it's a shame that they couldn't use their genius for something else. One more thing too. While Rodney was on the dating game, that was right during the time that he was doing his murder spree. So he was literally raping and killing women when he was accepted onto the dating game and he won. So these producers, I don't know if they didn't do like their due diligence because he definitely had a record for child molestation against a 12-year-old Tally. I'm sorry, an 8-year-old Tally Shapiro. So I don't know if they didn't see that if they didn't look what the situation was there, but they almost sent one of their contestants out with a murderer. Like she is honestly so lucky that she she could read the vibe. She is a good vibe reader and her vibe reading saved her fucking life. So good for you. Anyway, thank you guys for listening to this week's episode. You can find me on Facebook and Instagram at True Crimes Untold Podcast. Go to Spotify, hit the subscribe button, and make sure you do hit that subscribe button. And you will get notifications with new episodes. And I will see you guys in a couple weekends. Bye. Have a good Valentine's Day. Mwah.